Good morning and welcome to Car Thoughts with David. I'm your host as always, David Calvert. And thank you guys so, so much for tuning in every day to listen to what I have to say. It is wonderful having you in the car with me every day. Makes me feel like, you know, we're all going on this grand adventure. Though, of course, with the amount of people listening, you know, I'd have to have a stretch limo to fit all of you in the car. So... Uh, that's not the case. We're kind of packed in here like sardines in my 2015 uh, white Volkswagen Passat. The manual transmission and 48,817 miles as of this recording. So, welcome. Thank you guys again. It's awesome. I hit 6,000 listens uh, this last week. And my goal for the to end out the year was 5,000, and I mean, you guys really came through with the listens, with sharing, with with spreading the word, and I can't thank you guys enough. I, the, I, the show keeps growing, and I hope one day that the person that inspired me to actually start doing this podcast, Daniel Geffen, his show after four years, it had over 250,000 listens, a quarter of a million listens, and that is my goal for this show is to get to that number and to, to make that a reality. So thank you guys for being a part here at the beginning. You know, in the words of, uh, you know, one of the songs in The Sound of Music, let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. Um, yes, I did just quote Julia Andrews <laughs> in a song uh, written by, what was it, Rodgers and Hammerstein. Um, yes, yes, I am a very old soul when it comes to movies. One of my favorite, and the oldest movie that I know of that is one of my favorite movies to watch is The Great Dictator, uh, written, directed, and starring Charlie Chaplin. So, uh, Charlie Chaplin was a brilliant, brilliant uh, cinematographer. He was also a brilliant writer and a very, very, um, you know, alliterative person. So, you know, I'm a huge fan of his, uh, you know, even back to his silent film days. So, um, you know, very, very cool movie. It came out in 1940, and uh, I enjoy watching it. I go back and watch it every now and again. So, very, very cool stuff. There's a lot of great, actually, inspirational stuff about unity and, and peace and harmony and all of this. So... You know, definitely something worth checking out. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, but basically, where am I now? Where am I now? Okay. So, <laughs> switching gears as I am right now. I'm in third gear. Um, I started writing one of my other books. So I've told you guys I committed to writing three books, and I wrote a short story, and I've gotten requests from others to uh, write. I wrote two short stories, and both of them were pretty well received. People actually really liked them, and uh, so I'm probably going to end up turning both of those into books. Uh, One of them got a little bit more traction than the other, and... I wrote out basically a full chapter. I took the little short 1300 character post that I did and fleshed it out to become an entire chapter 
of, I think, 1,150 words. So, got that. Um, super exciting, you know, and basically I was asked to continue writing it by people and and to flesh it out more and to continue the story so I promised to write it into a book Um, so that is what I'm doing it's a book called uh, Beyond the Wall and of course um, it's available to be found on as I yawn on LinkedIn (laughs) it's available to be found on LinkedIn um, the first chapter and uh, I've also shared it out across the link to it on Twitter and uh, I haven't done it on Instagram yet I need to put it out on my Instagram uh, not my dual podcast Instagram because that's just for advertising other podcasts Um, but on my actual uh, my Instagram, which is Instagram.com forward slash David Calvert 2, um, because I am a second, or as some might say, a junior, but a little story about that right quick. Um, my mom didn't want me to be called junior because my dad had a cousin who was a junior, and everyone called him junior. So, and, and people would interchange too. They'd be talking like, oh yeah, you know, I saw Junior last month. And then later on they'd be like, yeah, well, you know, I'll, I'll call Harley later. And so this whole time I thought there was some mysterious family member that I'd never met because no one ever explained it to me. I mean, I was just a kid. So, I mean, what does a kid need to know about their family, right? So, um, so no one ever told me. So for, for decades, I thought that I had this random um, relative that everybody knew and everybody talked to and they met with them all the time and had no idea who this person was and never seen a picture of them, nothing. I mean, he was just some mysterious figure from my past um, that I happened to be related to that I never knew. And turns out I knew him because it was my my dad's cousin Harley, <laughs> and I mean I grew up uh, not like uh, six six uh, houses down from him. You know I I knew who he was. I hung out with his son and or his sons. I was going to say his son and his other son, but that doesn't make any sense. I can just pluralize that. His sons, and um, you know we weren't like super close. But, you know, um, you know, I knew who he was, and you know, because he was obviously much older than me. Um, but, you know, people would talk about him as if he were two different people, like uh, Dr. Junior and Mr. Harley. And, um, yeah, so I could never quite understand that. Eventually I figured it out when I finally asked who the heck is Junior. I think I was in my 20s. And because uh, I was thoroughly confused, there was this whole conversation going on, and, and both Junior and Harley were subjects of the conversation. Uh, people kept interchanging back and forth, so I just assumed that they were still talking about two different people. And after I said, Who the heck is this Junior person? I don't know him. My dad's like, Of course you know Harley. And I was like, Wait, you guys are talking to him, uh, talking about him like he's two different people. So unless he's got multiple personality disorder, that's not cool. He's one person. Let him be one person. 
stop switching names. He's got he's got a name. Call him by that. You know, I, I've never been a nicknamey type person. Um, you know, with people, it's just I don't know. Some people are good with nicknames. Some people aren't. I'm just not one of those people that are big in nicknames. So anyway, so yeah. Um, but yeah, so anyway. I've committed to writing four books this year, or this coming year, 2019. I'm committed to writing four books. Um, and the the thing that sealed the deal is because I had been asked by a couple people on LinkedIn to write the four books, or the, the, the book called Beyond the Wall, which is a detective, uh, science fiction detective story. Um, and then... I'm like, okay, cool, yeah, I'll definitely write it. Well, later on that afternoon, this was Friday afternoon, I get a, a Facebook message from my grandmother, um, my grand, my dad's mom, and she messages me and it's like, hey, can you send me the link to your short story? I was reading it, and I got called away. It was getting really interesting. And I got called away, and when I came back, it was gone off my desktop, and uh, I think her browser crashed or whatever um, at work, and of, and of course, um, <clears throat> she couldn't find the link again, so she just asked me to send it to her. So I was like, okay, cool, you know, um, and uh, so I, I got the link, I sent it to her, I said, I'm really glad that you're enjoying it, I'm going to keep writing it, and and continue this story, and she was super excited about that, and I'm like, wow, you know, I mean, that's, that's amazing, because, I mean, I real, I mean, my grandmother's, like, in her 80s, she still works a full-time job at a call center, and you guys have heard me complain about not liking call centers, and how I had to go through therapy, um, near the end of my tenure at a call center, I actually had to see a therapist, because I was losing my mind um she has done this for years and she doesn't even work in a good call center like like a good like you know where you're dealing with people that are not necessarily you know mad at you she works in a collections department you're calling people and asking them for money they're not happy about it because you keep hounding them for money and generally they say not nice things I was just in technical support, which was still angry people because their phones were broken. And I'm sorry, but most of the problems were actually self-inflicted uh, problems. Like when a girl called and her iPhone, because if you try and type in the lock screen password and you type it in incorrectly so many times, it'll eventually say, you can't try this again for another minute. And if you keep going, it'll five minutes, 10 minutes, half an hour, right? She had, and I actually had her send me a screenshot of it. She had to take a picture of it with her parents' phone. She had tried her password so many times that it was locked down and said that she could not try her password again for one million minutes. Million with an M, by the way, if that doesn't come through in the audio. One million minutes. She had tried and failed so many times and so fervently that she had actually locked her phone for longer than the phone would live, basically. Um, if you want to be realistic about it. So I had to end up sending her another phone. I would get calls from people who were drunk and at bars, and they're like, hey, I lost my cell phone. 
And I'm like, no, you didn't. And they're like, yeah, man, I totally lost my phone. And I'm not even sure where I'm at. And I, the cat is about to come. I'm sitting here on the floor uh, at this pay phone because I, I'm too drunk to stand up, but I can't find my cell phone. And I'm like, sir, you, you did not lose your cell phone because you're calling me from it. No, I'm not. I'm on a pay phone. And I'm like, sir, with all due respect, this is the 21st century. I said, there's two things that I can assure you of um, that you probably should be aware of. Pay phones don't really exist anymore, and caller ID was invented in the 80s, and I can clearly see the number you're calling from, and it's the number on your account. So, um, so basically what I told him since he was drunk and probably wouldn't remember the conversation anyway, is I told him that I'd set a self-destruct on his cell phone so it would blow up, so whoever stole it would get, you know, <laughs> would not get to uh, make any money off of it. And um, I told him that I would ship him out a new phone in the morning, or I would ship him out a new phone and he'd have it in the morning, um, so it should be delivered, and left it at that. He was happy with that outcome. He was really excited because nobody would be able to get any of his data out of his phone, and, you know, it probably scared the crap out of him when it blew up. And, um, you know, not a, not a big, like, dangerous explosion, but, you know, just, just a minor, like, like what you see in, like, Mission Impossible, like where the smoke starts coming out. You know, this cell phone will self-destruct in five seconds or whatever, that type of thing. And then, you know, he'd have his new phone by the time he was sober. So he was excited about that, which, of course, he probably woke up feeling terrible. Um, and by the time he started sobering up, he realized that he actually did have his phone. <laughs> so a lot of the things I took phone calls for were actually not um, issues with the actual Verizon service or their phones. Um, and that still drove me to the point of neem therapy. Um, so, yeah, she works in collections. So, I mean, I don't really know what she's into. I mean, I know she reads the Bible, but as far as reading other things, I hadn't a clue. And I would have never guessed in a million years that she would have reached out to me and said, you know, hey, um, you know, I really enjoyed this. Can you send me the link to the book? I'd like to continue uh, reading it. And I'm like, wow, okay, cool. So, yeah, so at the end of the day, I started writing. I've got the first chapter of that book done. Um, <clears throat> since I'm going to self-publishing route, I don't have to stick to the astringent 50,000-word limit. Um, though, of course, I think the story could easily go 50,000 words. Um, but I don't have to hold myself to that. I don't have to make myself, like, hold to that standard if I don't want to. If the story seems to be at a good place to end it, I'm just going to end it. I mean, it's going to be a long book. It's not going to be like a, like, a mag uh, like a magazine, like a couple pages and like, oh, yep, story's done. Um, but, you know, the fact is that I'm, you know, just... I don't have to hold myself to that standard, and that's a little bit more of a relief um, going forward. Though, of course, I'd still love to be signed by a publisher, don't get me wrong. So if you're listening to this and you are a publisher and you're interested in publishing my books, definitely reach out and let me know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it's called Beyond the Wall, and uh, so I'm excited about that. Um, but I started my self-help book, which basically just telling my story of how from a small child at the age of three, uh, I began to show um, OCD tendencies and start having complexes about that. 
um, how I suffered and still to this day suffer with an eating disorder called ARFID, uh, which is Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, which is basically I'm an extremely picky eater, but I'm not a picky eater just because I don't want to. I'm a picky eater because I have OCD about food. And like simple things like touching a wet mushroom to chop it up gags me. It freaks me out. I can't do it. I feel like so gross. And as soon as I touch it, because I've tried to help my wife um, deal with vegetables and stuff to help her cook meals for herself, because obviously I don't eat them. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, touching a, a mushroom, I cannot do that. It freaks me out. And all I want to do from the second I lay my fingers on it to the second I hand it to her to let her cut it is wash my hands. I can't, freaks me out, can't do it. And that's just one example. Um, it's a taste, texture, mouthfeel, uh, uh, aesthetic, you know, uh, thing. There's, there's so many different aspects of it, and it's really a kooky, very weird thing. But as I've discovered, as this has actually been given a name, because when I was a child, oh, he's just a picky eater, he'll grow out of it. Yeah, because the doctor didn't know what it was, and really the, the whole psychological aspect of it wasn't really that big. Because in the 80s, what did you do? You just popped a bunch of pills and they would go away. Um, though granted, this doctor didn't give me any medication or anything like that. He just said it's a phase and he'll grow out of it. He's a, he's a child, he's, he's three, you know. He's going to go through phases like this. It's a natural part of a child's life. Um, though when I didn't grow out of it ever, <laughs> you know, um, I started trying to find out what was wrong with me. And, uh, there was a disorder called selective eating disorder, which wasn't, um, wasn't really quite a close enough fit because it was still just being a picky eater, but having more of a mental predilection to be a picky eater. Um, it wasn't until they finally started digging deeper into it and discovered this other disorder that they named ARFID, where it was like, this is exactly me. It's not, I mean, the food smells phenomenal. You put me in a steakhouse and my mouth will start watering. I love the smell of steak. I love the smell of um, mashed potatoes. I love the smell of gravy and turkey and ham and all of these wonderful things, you put them out there and I love the smell of them. Um, I can cook really well. I cook uh, scientifically, um, you know, everything by time and measurement, um, and I bake the same way, time and measurement, but I can also um, pick up on the smell. I know what something smells like because it smells good to me, and I'm like, okay, the steak is at that point where it smells really good and really juicy. I know the trick where, you know, you touch certain parts of your face. That's how you can tell, like, if you touch the steak, how squishy it is or how squishy it isn't determines whether it's rare, uh, medium, medium well, well done, all of that. I've learned that from uh, a couple of restaurateurs that I know. Um, you know, how to touch a steak because, you know, I've always been curious um, how they can check them without cutting into them, that type of thing. Um, you know, so there's that. And, you know, which granted, I, I know they don't go around touching steaks, but he was saying, like, for his personal, when he's grilling at home, you know, he can just touch it and be like, oh, yep, yep, it's the right consistency. So, and I don't remember, it was like neck, cheek, forehead, 
and one other part of the face, but you'd touch four different parts of your face and it would deter. If you touched a snake and you felt that same like squishy or not squishy response, you'd know how well the snake was cooked. But of course, you can also do it by temperature as well, using one of those meat thermometer things where you stab it with a little poker and it tells you how much heat it is in the center. Um, so there's all kinds of different ways and anecdotal ways and things like that. But yeah, so I learned how to cook. My mom made sure of that and how to bake because she wanted me to be able to take care of myself if I never found um, a wife. So, um, you know, and I learned how to sew and other, you know, do laundry, iron, you know, all those those home economic type skills that that anyone should really learn. You know, I feel like those life skills are more important than a lot of the stuff you learn in school because that's the stuff you're going to be doing in your day-to-day life. <laughs> Unless you become like an independently wealthy billionaire where you have people to do those things for you, you're probably going to be doing your own laundry and folding your own clothes and, and you might patch up a shirt if you really like it or it was really expensive versus going out and buying another one because you can't afford another shirt. Uh, or they don't make them anymore. Um, so, you know, the little lessons like that. Um, but yeah, so when ARFID came around and I read about it and I studied it, I realized that not only am I A, not alone, there's over 100,000 documented cases of uh, people who have suffered or do suffer from that psychological disorder. Uh, I also discovered and was able to give a name to what I had suffered with for my entire life. I mean, I'm 37 years old, and this journey, this problem started when I was a little, like, three years old, like a little bit after I turned three. Uh, My mom says that I had, like, pneumonia or something as a baby. I got really sick, and then after that, I just stopped eating. Because before that... Anything that you would put in front of me that was food, I would consume, apparently. That's that's the story. Um, I don't remember this, per se, because I was under the age of three, though I do remember some things before or from that time, but not necessarily what I was eating. Um, like, I distinctly remember crawling out of my crib and climbing down the stairs when I would hear my dad come home from work. Um, and I would sit on the uh, on the middle um, landing, you know, because it was an L-shaped staircase. So I, you know, you'd go up half the stairway and then turn and then go up the rest of the stairway in the house. And I would remember seeing on that landing, looking out the bars, looking at watching my dad smoke a pipe, and um, you know, like a like a Sherlock Holmes pipe, not a not a. You know, probably the first thing people thought of <laughs> in this day and age was like a, like a, you know, um, hash pipe or a, you know, a bong or something like that. No, like a, like a Sherlock Holmes detective pipe, you know, like, you know, sticking the tobacco and lighting it and, or, or, uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, Gandalf, the long pipe that he smoked, something like that. Um, but yeah, so, you know, f- so for 34 years, I've eaten basically the equivalent of junk food. When I go to a doctor, when I have to do blood work or whatever for my my health exams, for my insurance and stuff like that, they're always amazed at how 
they're like, well, you know, you're within the norms, you know, keep up the good work. I'd love to see you lose like 20 pounds, but keep up the good work. And um, so, yeah, you know, but I never fit in because everybody was, um, you know, ate other food. And as a child, you know, at school, I'd eat the same thing every day, which was I would either eat pizza if my mom had packed some for me. Or I'd get pizza from the cafeteria occasionally, but, I, you know, the pizza was basically cardboard with Lord knows what on it. It wasn't exactly what I'd call pizza. Um, it was kind of terrifying, as most cafeteria food was in the 80s. Um, or my mom would bring me a pizza, and she'd sit and have lunch with me. Or she would pack me peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, uh, which I used to love. Now I cannot stand peanut butter and jelly sandwiches at all because two reasons. One, I ate them so much as a kid because that was like something quick and cheap that my mom could make me on the, on the fly. You know, something she could knock out real quick because she had to make food for the rest of the family and then she had to make special food just for me. Um, so there was that. And then um, you know, and then the other reason why I don't like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches anymore is my dad loves um, uh peanut butter something peanut butter cookies yeah and my mom makes them during christmas and both me and her absolutely gag when she's making them if i'm over at the house when she's making them because we can't stand the smell of baking or burning peanut butter um and we just gag so i just can't really eat peanut butter chili sandwiches anymore because because of that the first thing i think of is like that gag response kicks in from the smell of the peanut butter getting warm while the cookies are baking and so yeah and uh so yeah like I said I discovered that there were like a hundred thousand documented cases of people that have this uh, psychological disorder so I finally for once in my life felt like hey I'm not alone in this I'm not the only one who eats like this this is great now, most of the people have went through therapy or counseling or taking medications or whatever to overcome it. Um, and with time and a lot of money, I've heard people saying that it's, they spent over $10,000 in therapy to overcome this. I was like, why? When I go to the doctor and they check my my. Uh, blood pressure, they check my cholesterol, they check my blood work, they check all these things. David, you are fine, you're healthy, you're a little bit overweight, you could probably stand to lose about 20 pounds. And that's all I hear. And I don't, like, continue to gain weight, I maintain. So I'm, I'm not, like, I'm getting bigger as I go. I've been maintaining the same weight for the last probably eight years, you know. So... You know, there's that. And it's like, okay, well, you know, this is the weight my body is at. This is where I'm sitting. I'm not fluctuating up and down like crazy. I might lose five pounds here, gain it back. You know, over the course of like maybe a year, you know, I'll fluctuate a couple pounds here and there, whatever, you know, and that's, you know, fairly normal for most people. Um, but yeah, so on top of that, I also had, you know, actual OCD. Um, which was crazy. I mean, I've literally driven all the way to work and thought, like, man, I think 
the, I forgot to lock the door of the house and driven all the way home. Checked the lock, realized the door had been locked all the time, was finally relieved and able to drop that, and, um, you know, went back to work. Um, as a small child, I was, I would play in the sandbox with the local kids in the neighborhood, and then I would freak out because my hands were dirty because I'd been playing in sand, and <clears throat> then have to run in every five to ten minutes and wash my hands. So literally, like, I'd go out and play in the sandbox, and it got to the point where eventually it, it bothered me enough that I didn't even want to play in the sand. Um, I didn't want to build sandcastles. I didn't want to do that with the other kids because I got tired of actually washing my hands and running to do that. And I'm like, why am I torturing myself in doing this? It'd be easier not to play at all. Um, so I stopped playing in sand and building sandcastles. Um, all of my clothes had to be stacked. And actually, I remember as a small child at the age of like five or six, I would actually have my clothes stacked by color, like so they would fade. Like I would have my blue shirts, my dark blue shirts would be on the bottom, my lighter shirts, lighter blue shirts would be on the top. All of my white shirts would be by themselves. Um, my jeans would be stacked, you know, and folded in one pile. My jogging pants, like my sleep, you know, night uh, pants and things like that, pajama pants, whatever, would be stacked in another pile um, <clears throat> my socks were actually stacked like you would stack um, cans because they were kind of round in shape so I would have a row across the bottom going the full length of the the uh, closet uh, shelf and then I would stack them like making a, a pyramid in the back and then in the front would be obviously my uh, my pants, for those of you in, in London, um, you know, so my trousers were actually, you know, I had my, my denim trousers and then my sleeping trousers and then my pants were stacked with my socks, um, separately, of course, <clears throat> and yeah, and that was my closet. We're talking five, six years old, and everything was organized. Everything had a place and a purpose. Everything was color-coordinated. Um, I had clothes that would ha were hung up as well. Those were my nice clothes, my, you know, my going somewhere nice clothes. They were hung up and they were never touched. And they had a specific order that I put them in when I wore them and had them washed. I would put them back in the exact same spot where they were before. Um, all of my Hot Wheels cars I collected, I had some that I took out of the package that I would play with. And then I had a collection of ones that were never opened. As a small child, I had a collection of Star Wars figures that were never opened. I actually collected them. I did not play with these toys. I collected them. I'd open a few just to play with, and then that was it. Um, the rest of them stayed in their packages. And I actually, at one point in time, had bought a bunch of uh, thumbtacks and took one wall in my room and hung up all my Hot Wheels cars and Matchbox cars and thumbtacked them to the wall and they were numerically sorted because if you've actually ever bought Hot Wheels or Matchbox cars, they are actually numbered vehicles. They all have, a, you know, each one has a number attached to it based on like, okay, this is the 22,000th 22, Matchbox car we've made, 
So that's Matchbox card number 22,000. So I actually had them sorted numerically as I got ones in the collection. So if I bought, like say I had one, three, five, and seven, if I found two, four, and six, I would literally pull all of the Matchbox cards down, <clears throat> except for obviously one, and I'd rehang all the rest of them because I had to add in those three and I didn't have open spaces. It wasn't like a periodic table where I just was like, you know, I knew where they were. So I put a block over here because that's like 296 and I had one over here and I'm like, okay, I need to fill in the rest. I literally put one and 296 together. I know there's not that many elements. I'm just pulling arbitrary numbers. Um, or I mean, <laughs> um, but anyway, you know, I pulled all that together and then I kept expanding it out as I went. So, you know, it was a very time-consuming process. Again, I was a small child doing all of this. So obviously there was something a little bit different about me. And I had trouble making friends as a result because they'd see this and they would be confused um, as to what I was doing or why I was doing it. And they didn't do anything crazy like that. So... Um, you know, that was, that was something that, uh, you know, I just found fascinating. I loved sorting things. That was my, that was my zen, was sorting and uh, cleaning and um, everything having a place, everything having a purpose. Um, and yeah, so I did that. And I loved collecting things. I mean, I collected Matchbox cars and Hot Wheels cars. I collected Transformers. I collected Star Wars figures um, that I ended up eventually selling when I was unemployed for quite a good amount of money because they were all unopened. Um, I collected stamps. I collected baseball cards. I had this uh, obsession with collecting things. Um, not so much that I was a hoarder, um, but I did have an, a collection obsession. And so over time... You know, I started to find ways to disrupt that pattern. Um, like, for instance, I'd throw a shirt on the floor. Unfolded. It's clean. It shouldn't be on the floor. It should be in the closet where it, where it belongs in its appropriate stack. But I would throw it in the floor. And I'd sit there in my room and just look at it. And try and see how long I could last leaving it there and then uh, over you know a short period of time you know I'd, two or three minutes I'd feel like that was a victory and I'd put the shirt up where it belonged um, eventually five or ten minutes eventually it got to the point where it didn't really bother me as much and I could leave it there for maybe an hour um, but I felt like I was making those baby steps and making that progress I never got to that point with food Probably because every time I ever had to go to the doctor for anything, things came back normal. I came back healthy. I'm like, I got that mentality of, well, if I stop eating like this, I might be unhealthy and have problems like everyone else. Um, you know, not obviously not mentally, but, but physically, you know, cholesterol and all these other problems that I don't have. And I'm like, why would I switch? So that's why the food thing stuck with me this long. Um, I still deal with OCD. Trust me, that's not something that ever goes away. 
I've just learned to better deal with it. <clears throat> and I very, I don't want to say very rarely, but compared to the way I was as a child, I definitely have less times where I freak out or start to break down or have panic attacks as a result of, you know, laying, you know, like there's literally been times where I le left, walked, walked from my car to work and my car was unlocked and I knew I'd forgot to lock it. And I just let it, I just left it and worked my entire shift at work without, because I've literally taken my, like my lunch break and walked the mile and a half to my car, walked the mile and a half back just to lock my car, just so I would have that peace of mind so no one would steal it or break into it or take, there's nothing in my car except for, you know, a charger and like some paper towels and some trash and right now my wife's shoes because um, I just, you know, dropped her off at work and these are an extra pair of shoes she keeps with her, you know, so when she gets off work I pick her up, you know, I can, uh, you know, she can change her shoes. But yeah, so there's really not anything in the car worth stealing or messing with. And nobody's going to steal a manual transmission because most people can't drive them. Um, but I've actually gotten to the point where I can actually work an entire shift without freaking out about that. So, you know, it's getting better. It's still a problem, but it's getting better. And it's just through self-determination. I determined that I didn't want to live like that anymore. I, I didn't go see a therapist. I didn't go to a doctor. I didn't get put on medication. I just realized that there was something wrong, that it wasn't normal what I was doing. And I uh, moved on. I, I overcame. I stopped the pattern. I changed my mindset and I moved forward. So, you know, that's it is possible. It can be done, you know, as long as you're able to recognize what's wrong, you think about it, you think through it, you come up with solutions. You can overcome anything if you put your mind to it. Um, and I mean, even people who are on medication or who are, you know, seeking counseling for OCD or things like that, they're never truly 100% overcome it. They just get to the point where they acquiesce, which is basically where I am. <laughs> oh, I left my car unlocked. Well, no one's going to steal it, you know, because it's got manual transmission. They'll never get out. They'll never get out of the spot. Plus, I'm parallel parked. <clears throat> if they can figure out how to do that with a manual transmission, I'll let them have the car. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's just one of those things where I'm finally to the point where things just don't bother me that much anymore. And I, it took years to do, but I did it. Um, so, and I didn't really intend this to become a psychotherapy session or, or anything like that, but if, you know, with anything I'm doing with this podcast, if we can help someone else, that's my goal. So if you're out there and you're struggling through these things, you're not alone. That is the number one key I can tell you for success in overcoming things like OCD and eating disorders is you're not alone. There are people out there hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people out there that are going through the same thing you are. So don't feel like you can't talk to anybody about it, okay? So with that, I hope you guys have a fantastic day. I can't wait to share with you guys tomorrow. It'll be less of a therapy session, I promise. Like I said, I didn't intend this one to be a therapy session. So have a great day, everyone. Thank you, and Car Thoughts out.